0: Good day, and welcome to episode 29 of You Don't Have to Yell, installment number three in our series on Black History Month. I'm your host, Dan Sally. Yes, I have recovered from the flu and crawled out of my deathbed. Thank you for asking. Now, before I get started, One thing that was brought to my attention by one of my dedicated listeners is that there hasn't been a lot of prescriptive advice for what to do with all the information you've been getting on Black History Month, other than to feel terrible about our own history. And I originally formatted this series with the goal of helping folks who feel that not being racist themselves is enough to understand that there are some deep-rooted philosophies and structures at work in our society that will continue to perpetuate racial inequality if we don't actively and consciously fight against them. That being said, yeah, there weren't any how-to guides in the last two episodes, so I'll take the hit for that, but I'm going to include something at the end of this podcast that hopefully helps. Now, on to more of our terrible past. In the last two episodes, We learned about how slavery and the philosophy of white supremacy in the U.S. and Brazil created a social system where the black communities of both countries failed to reach true equality after emancipation, but we've made scant mention of the northern non-slaveholding United States. And while the South is often the focus of the civil rights struggle in the mid-20th century, African-Americans migrating Northeast to escape the segregation and violence in the South arrived to cities such as Boston and New York to a new set of problems. So here to talk about this is Jason Sokol, professor of history at the University of New Hampshire and author of All Eyes Are Upon Us, Race and Politics from Boston to Brooklyn, a book that documents the more subtle forms of segregation that took place in the Northeast in the 20th century. It's a fascinating conversation that taught me a lot about my own backyard and gave me a different perspective on what I was taught about the history of my own city, Boston, growing up. I'll be back at the end with closing comments.
1: So I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, so I had an interest in race in the North from the very beginning, Mm -hmm. Um, but I had chosen to do my first book about the South, actually, about how white Southerners experienced the civil rights movement, um, because I thought that the heart of America's racial history really uh, was there below the Mason-Dixon line. Mm-hmm. But, you know, from the very beginning, I wanted to understand or untangle what I thought was a sort of a puzzle, the puzzle of race in the North, because the North did indeed have this long and brutal history of segregation and racism, Mm -hmm. and racial violence. And yet at the same time, the North afforded some openings and opportunities for African-Americans that uh, the South, particularly the Deep South, really did not. So the first thing I did before I um, started to write my book on the North, um, which was called Allies Are Upon Us, and which focused on Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. First thing I did was try to read all the other books on race in the North. And I found that most of those books really fell into one of two categories. On the one hand, they continued to paint the North in in racial terms as a sort of a higher place, as a land of liberty. On the other hand, if you read the most recent scholarship on race in the North, you'll find that historians, sociologists, et cetera, are really emphasizing just how bad Northern cities were. They will uh, focus on for instance, the Boston busing crisis and the brutal white violence that erupted there in the mid-1970s, or on the, the histories of police brutality in places like Philadelphia or New York. Basically, I found neither of those approaches very satisfying or very accurate um, because I found that uh, northern cities, particularly places like Boston and New York, um, held both histories within them often at the same time, often um, these were cities that uh, where structures of racial segregation were erected and incidents of racial violence flared just at the same time that um, uh, such cities or states were electing African-Americans to higher office, for instance. Mm -hmm. So I tried to tell uh, the two stories at the same time that is these long histories of segregation and racial violence, together with um, the 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 aspiration toward those higher ideals, albeit the albeit those uh, aspirations were um, often unrealized.
0: I'm interested in this part about the the structural aspects of racism because, obviously, I, I you know growing up in Boston, I the the busing crisis was was right there it was a recent memory um and of course you have instances of of racial let's call it small-scale racial violence for example in new york city but what were some of the structural elements or what are some of the things maybe that aren't talked about as frequently in that history
1: oh well i mean structural elements were that northern cities Uh, particularly Boston, New York, and even smaller ones that people Mm -hmm. don't think about, like my own native Springfield, like Hartford, New Haven, Worcester, uh, Providence, Um, they all built uh, fairly rigid structures of housing segregation Mm -hmm. um, and also of school segregation. Um, And these, these were often... Uh, you know, it wasn't that, that African, so African Americans, you know, they came north in that first wave of the Great Migration during World War I. Mm-hmm. And then millions more came during World War Two during the second Great Migration. Um, that's really where I started to, uh, to do my research, both in small cities like Springfield mm-hmm. and in large cities like Brooklyn. Um, Brooklyn, for instance, the Bedford-Stuyvesant neighborhood uh for instance was an integrated neighborhood racially integrated neighborhood up until the 1920s 1930s and so on 1930s was that you know part of the new deal uh uh was the creation of the fha which itself then started to um um offer home loans to americans but baked into that home loan system uh was racism plain and simple that is people who bought homes in white neighborhoods could get better mortgage rates than people who bought them in mixed race or african-american neighborhoods it's what we call redlining now because the you know they they uh, um uh, fha created all these maps and they colored in red those parts of the cities where african-americans lived. i mean so it was a very direct policy result that basically ghettos or uh, sort of all black neighborhoods uh, were created when all these migrants streamed north, um, basically during World War Two. Mm-hmm. And so the, the part of that story that I researched most intensively was I looked at the decade in which Jackie Robinson played in Brooklyn as a Brooklyn Dodger, 1947 mm-hmm. to 57. It's a decade that people know well because the common story is that Brooklyn welcomed Robinson and that he forged this great breakthrough in the history of American racial, racial relations, which he did. The irony was that if you look down the street from Ebbets Field, you could see in those same years, late 1940s, the neighborhood of Bedford-Stuyvesant um, basically being built as a black neighborhood Um, And you could also see every time, for instance, an African-American family moved uh, sort of a street beyond the boundaries of of Bedford-Stuyvesant, the sort of boundaries of that neighborhood would be redrawn. Um, That is political boundaries like congressional district or school boundaries, like where those kids went to school. Uh, Those neighborhoods would be redrawn to keep the African-Americans uh, within a certain uh, congressional district within a certain school boundary and you saw that happen all over the Northeast The Boston mm-hmm. School Committee did the same thing in Boston to make sure that schools were segregated. So the point is that School segregation was not accidental. It was not just um, it was not just that. Oh, well African Americans wanted to live with their own So they just happened to go to the same schools not at all. It's mm-hmm. that um policymakers from, from members of the school board to um, uh, to city councils um, uh, usually, um, you know, created the, that's, that's what we mean when we, when we say structures, you know, created these laws and patterns at the municipal level, just as the federal government was creating similar laws and
0: structures um, to ensure that neighborhoods and schools were indeed racially segregated. That's what And I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you there. But that's, you know, yeah, it actually answers a question I had, which is, you know, where did this all come from? And it, it sounds like there was a real like top to bottom desire on, let's call it on behalf of the white power structure to effectively shut African Americans out of their neighborhoods or effectively keep them separate. Is that is that what I'm hearing? Or am I am I incorrect there?
1: Well, I mean, certainly federal, yeah, certainly federal and municipal policymakers um, um, wish to keep, you know, wish to keep schools and and housing basically segregated. But not just because they wanted that themselves, because they were responding to the desires of their constituents below also. Mm -hmm. Um, If you look at a place like uh, Detroit or Chicago, which I know is a little little bit out of the... um, uh, bailiwick of sort of New England Northeast, yeah, but there were long histories of these white homeowners' grassroots movements. Mm-hmm. Um, what I mean by that is not in the grassroots movement that we think of in the uh, traditional sense it 's not like people struggling for social justice. These would be grassroots movements of white homeowners who were doing everything they could to keep black people out of their neighborhoods mm-hmm. and um, from everything from um, you know, attaching housing covenants to their deeds, you know, mm-hmm. so saying that a black person couldn't buy this home, everything from that to violence to drive any African American homeowner out of, out of the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So policymakers in these cities were responding to the anger and the fury of their constituents who wanted to keep their neighborhoods white, who wanted to keep their schools white. Yeah. And same thing happened in the northeast. So I wouldn't say that it's simply the desires of a sort of nameless power structure. Yeah. Um, but it was um also the desires of uh, white people who lived in these neighborhoods and had had their kids go to these schools.
0: Yeah, and and maybe to, in- to inject my own experience in there for the the folks listening, you know, growing up in Boston in in the 80s it it might uh, a friend of mine who moved out to California says he describes it to people, and, and it's like he grew up on another planet because you had a distinct separation of, of we're not just talking black and white, like Irish, Italian. Oh, yeah. Um, like you were, you were, there were neighborhoods that were Irish neighborhoods, neighborhoods that were Italian neighborhoods. My dad to this day still says he's ashamed to admit he's a quarter Yankee. So like, mm-hmm. you know, like to give you an idea as to like the the depth of the sort of, you know, white on white prejudice there is here. And so, you know, is is it a case where as this, you know, black migration happened from the south, is it a case where they just became sort of like another group effectively that had to fight for turf? Or was it something bigger than that?
1: Um So the point you raise is actually one of the big differences in terms of the North and the South, when you're thinking of black and white in the South, the white community was basically unified. Of course, there were class differences, you know, rich whites, poor whites. Um, but in term, but there were not the ethnic differences in most of the cities, New Orleans, probably an exception. Um, but there were not the ethnic differences that you see you're talking about in in boston or brooklyn where you weren't a person wasn't simply white um they were irish or italian or yankee or in brooklyn new york they were jewish Mm -hmm. um and so you had those ethnic identities were indeed uh much more important than any unifying white identity um Mm -hmm. typically now the influx of african-americans started to change that though when african-americans came into the cities um, sometimes you had irish and italians then moving together to similar neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and trying to keep black people out so there was something quite different about uh, the african-american experience different than say the irish experience certainly the irish faced all sorts of discrimination particularly in the 19, 19th century, early 20th century, mm-hmm. but African-Americans ex, uh, experienced a of sort of dis, discrimination and a violence um, on a very different level. And, and what, the important difference there was that African-Americans were often punished for trying to attain sort of uh, um, what we think of as the American dream, for trying to buy a home in a certain neighborhood, for trying to, uh, you know, do well in a business, they're often punished and sort of driven out. And that's an experience that a lot of the other ethnic groups didn't have.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, it takes, you know, it takes a generation to lose an accent. Uh, and that makes it a lot easier for you to blend in. Uh, and, and I, I think too, the, the, just to kind of maybe recap what we've talked about and and get to the next phase. So it sounds to me like what happens is there's this big migration earlier part of the 20th century. And there were at the same time, there are a number of government devices out there designed to make it easy for people, white people specifically to own a home and buy that accrue wealth. And so it sounds like Mm -hmm. what what you end up having is you end up having this situation where uh, the where African-Americans are left out of the equation um, there's the you know phenomenon of maybe white flight that we talk about, where uh, you're going to go to the better, you're going to go to the neighborhood with the better rate, which happens to be the white neighborhood. And so I would imagine, you know, after a few decades of that, it's a situation where now the the neighborhoods you, you effectively have, uh, you know, inferior schools. You have all, all all the hallmarks of 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 a of a of a, of a, of a poorer neighborhood that just so happen to kind of follow the black community around. Am I tying that together correctly or, or no? Yeah,
1: and I, and, I, and I assume you mean just so happened and sort of sarcastically. Because yeah, it it, exactly. It wasn't that, there was nothing coincidental about it. Yeah, yeah, um, uh, yeah. It was actually stunning to me to look at the history of my own native Springfield and to actually see the maps of school districts and to see how the school committee redrew those maps each time African-Americans moved to another street over mm-hmm. a- absolutely stunning to see how they um, intentionally tried to keep certain schools as white schools and certain schools as African-American schools now none of those schools had like a hundred percent you know hundred percent white and, and zero black but it was usually they were trying to keep it they had some sort of tipping point and we're trying to keep that um, keep certain schools uh sort of reputationally as white schools and others and as african-americans yeah very purposeful
0: yeah and so let's go in if you don't mind i want to jump into busing for a second not not solely because it's personal but also because i probably know more about that than any other uh than Mm -hmm. any other instance in history and i'll give you the narrative i was told because obviously i'm coming at this with a with a with a very slanted perspective but yeah now now where did you so where did you grow up so i grew up in dedham which is mm-hmm. uh, if you know the area you know just outside of boston yeah. uh we lived in jamaica plain uh during mm-hmm. the, during the crisis so right in the city and the the narrative that uh that we were brought up with was the idea that first off it it it, it wasn't about race it was about the fact that kids were being bussed from safer neighborhoods to neighborhoods that were less safe and they didn't want to put their kids in danger. And to mm-hmm. add to that, there was also the case where most of the people who were promoting the policy of busing were also the people who were wealthy enough to afford to buy their way out of it. Mm-hmm. So either they didn't live in the city or they could afford just to send their kids to another school. How, yeah. how true or untrue is that?
1: I would say there are kernels of truth in it, but that is basically false, okay. um, because um, because I think if what you need to do is look at busing through the perspective of the African American children
0: mm-hmm.
1: who were the ones um, who were basically in the segregated and underfunded schools, and look mm-hmm. at what they were asking for, mm-hmm. um, and so. I've already detailed the way that the Boston School Committee had purposefully kept schools segregated, and Uh I'll need to rehash that, but Uh in 1965, the state of Massachusetts passed the Racial Imbalance Act, um, which was the first state law of its kind, and Massachusetts congratulated itself for its progressive thinking here, Uh where it basically outlawed segregated schools. Um, How did the Boston School Committee respond, or the Springfield School Committee respond? They didn't respond. They didn't move to comply with the law. They Mm -hmm. didn't try anything to try to integrate the schools. So that's 1965, 11 years after Brown v. Board. Um, And Boston schools grew more and more segregated between um, 65 and 1970, which is when the NAACP finally filed a lawsuit um, because the segregation was getting worse in those schools. so the point, is, so I, I think, well, I, you know, I think it's, it's, it's fair to blame the leaders of the city in large part, people like Luis de Hicks mm-hmm. um, and other leaders for complete failure to try to comply with the law, to try to integrate schools. They had every chance to integrate on their own terms, to figure mm-hmm. out, you know, which schools they could try to integrate, which ways might work you know try to put together plans that didn't involve bussing kids from one neighborhood to hood to the other mm-hmm. but their their uh, their decision was to not to do anything and more than that was to inflame it and to claim that um you know they would never comply with um state law that kids would never be quote unquote forcibly integrated mm-hmm. um so, so I think that, you know, the fault, I think, at first lies with those policymakers who um, who didn't think it was, uh, who didn't think they wanted to, to comply with that law. So then, yeah, so then black parents forced the issue, filed a lawsuit. Finally, jug- Judge Garrity's infamous ruling of 1974, he ruled in favor of the NAACP, said there was a clear pattern of the Boston School Committee segregating the schools as there was, but then, uh, you know, the really controversial point is Garrity's solution, where he where he ordered busing, which had been uh, which the Supreme Court had ruled was indeed constitutional um, remedy for school segregation mm-hmm. uh, with the 1971 Supreme Court swan decision. They had ruled that that was constitutional to use to use busing to try to integrate schools. Um, and but you know the problem here was that Garrity paired uh you know places like South Boston High School with Roxbury which is you know to anybody who knows Boston it's pretty clear that you're going to get uh a violent eruption and mm-hmm. you did um so i think you know so i think that's the part um that was quite controversial i think by that point though it was clear by that point 1974 it was either busing or segregation. Yeah. You didn't have you didn't you didn't have to have busing, you know, quite the pairing of schools. I think that Garrity did, mm-hmm. um, but by that point, there's no other Boston school committee had resisted every other means of integration. So you either have to say that uh, you defend school segregation, or you defend something um, explosive and inconvenient like busing.
0: Yeah. And so if I'm going to put myself in the shoes of the black community then in in Boston, then it's kind of like, how long do we have to wait for you all to get right, get your act together and comply with the law? And so well, they
1: didn't want their kids going on buses to Southie either and that yeah. was
0: part of the problem with Garrity's decision. They, I mean,
1: their mm-hmm. vision of integration was not their kid being bused to South Boston High School and pelted with rocks. Yeah. Um, so that's that's not exactly how they wanted it to play out either. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, but it's, it's a thing where the leaders of Boston had dug the city into such, such a deep hole um, that in order to dig out, something major had to happen. You certainly hope that, that the solution could have been less explosive than it was. But but really, by 1974, 75, really the two options left were either something um, uh, quite jarring like busing or, or just more segregation.
0: I guess when you look at the state of affairs now, is there another imminent explosion coming in to address some of the remaining issues of inequality? What, in your opinion, do you feel needs to be addressed?
1: You know, it's really difficult now because we've had now so many decades of where the stats have been going in the wrong direction. Sort of, You know, um, New York City schools are some of the most segregated statistically right now. Mm-hmm. They, they grow more and more segregated each year. Boston schools are, are, you know, and then many cities, for instance, like Boston, you have a public school system that has statistically so few numbers of white students that just the idea of integration is, is hard to, to figure out. One of the uh, One of the more unfortunate events in the history of school integration was the Supreme Court decision of 1974. Uh, Milliken versus Bradley, where the Supreme Court ruled that, in effect, that suburban kids didn't have to go to urban schools. So, I mean, one of the, one of the pretty good solutions, I think, to integrating places would have been to say that suburban kids should be, should be able to go to urban schools and that one way to desegregate places was to sort of to think of them in a, as a sort of metropolitan region where for instance you know dedham would be part of the same school district as boston Mm -hmm. or brookline would be probably more easier to think about would be a place like brookline which is essentially right you know in boston would be part of the boston school system Uh, rather than having these quote unquote safety valves where uh white families could flee and make sure that their children um, you know, wouldn't have to take part in integration. Yeah. Um, so I think that's that's one of the one of the places that policymakers went wrong. I think um, the current Supreme Court, at least the Roberts Court, I think it was two thousand six, two thousand seven, with the parents involved case, mm-hmm. Supreme Court basically outlawed voluntary integration, said that school systems couldn't even take race into account, e- even if they wanted to. That's a further step back. So I think. Trying to figure out how we get out of this morass, I think, is really difficult. I mean, the first, um, you know, some of the leading Democratic candidates, Sanders and Warren, have put out plans saying um, how they would give incentives for school systems to integrate, at least in a socioeconomic sense, because they can't even say that they want to integrate racially. Mm. So, I mean, we're, we're in a really bad spot right now. Um, And, um, you know, part of it is Supreme Court rulings. Part of it is that, you know, a lot of white families, it's not a priority of theirs to try to have their kids uh, sort of go to uh, go to integrated schools. That's often because the urban schools are in such bad shape. So there's a lot of pieces of it and it's really, really difficult.
0: There's one thing that's been coming up in episode after episode uh, in this series, which is, of course, you have the issue of, of the economic disadvantage that was imposed on the, the African American community with, uh, with redlining and such. But the, the other one that's popped up a lot has been uh, the issue of education and the inequality of education, specifically when you talk about sort of elementary through high school, that beginning part there. One of the things I've been wondering is: is our system for funding education is that contributing to the problem? Is the fact that it's reliant on your zip code rather than just being an American citizen is that the root of it? Do you have any thoughts or, or comments there? Oh, in terms of like the fact
1: that in many places property taxes are what bingo fund yep. fund school systems. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's an there's an obvious there's an obvious inequality right there. Um, yeah. I mean, there's certainly the wrong way to think about it. I also think though, if you, if you think about having a metropolitan school district mm-hmm. that, that takes in suburbs as well as cities, it could, it could still be property tax based. It's just that some of your suburban property taxes are going to go to urban schools. Mm-hmm. Um, so if, if we're allowed to draw school district lines that envelop suburbs with cities, I think that would solve a lot of the problem. Now we're at a, I mean, that's a, that's a probably uh solution that's way far off given the current makeup of the Supreme court, because they would have to overturn the parents involved case as well as the Milliken case. But I think people need to start thinking bigger beyond their neighborhood school, uh, beyond their suburb and think about whether they want to have an integrated society or whether they want to have a segregated society and it doesn't have to be a sacrifice to send a white suburban kid um, into a sort of urban school. It's just that if those suburban property dollars can flow into that city um, and people start thinking about, I I mean, I I did a lot of research in terms of the Hartford area Mm -hmm. where you see perhaps more dramatically than anywhere else, a city that is just so under-resourced Um, And so poor the city of Hartford, and suburban and suburban areas right around it that are so wealthy. If you can lift up those suburban urban boundaries a little Mm. bit and let some of that suburban money start flowing in, I think you could start to basically revive the whole area. But that's, like I said, um, that's really sort of a aspirational vision rather than a realistic
0: one. Yeah. Well, the the one thread that's been consistent to as I've as I've kind of dived into the topic, is is the fact that it was really, it seems to me, it was really the American Revolution that started this conversation around equality. And, you know, part of the reason is is prior to the American Revolution, as far as I can tell, and I didn't do an exhaustive study on this, but there, it was pretty much okay to really treat people who weren't like you poorly. So slavery was never really questioned. That had existed in perpetuity. And it was really only when they wrote the passage that all men are created equal that people started to ask, well, you know, who does this apply to? Does it apply to men? Does it apply to women? Does it apply to people who are black? Does it apply to Native Americans? And I, I, I think in a way, like, you know, one of the things, as I was kind of going through your work, one of the things that pops up a lot is the idea of this disparity between the way the Northeast perceived itself and the reality of it. And, and, and I almost think that the progress, at least in, in, in America, is the fact that we have this ideal that we think we live up to, that we don't actually live up to. And it's that ideal that leads us to question again and again: why is it that we're doing things this way? Why is it that we're doing what we're doing? And, and I feel like the gravity of that has always won out in the long term. Uh, that might be like that might be way too naive and way too idealistic. Um, and I, and I don't expect it to fix anything in the near term, but if I'm to put money on our things are better, are better, if our, will things be better or worse in the next 20 years? Um, I feel like they'll get there. I, I don't think it's going to come without a lot of work and I don't think it's going to come with, without some amount of discomfort. Um, but I feel like it's coming.
1: Well, two things: I think Americans have used their ideals in two different ways over mm-hmm. the course of history. Mm-hmm. One is to use them as, as true ideals and as something that propels them to aspire to actual freedom and equality. Mm-hmm. That's one sense,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, which I think has happened at certain moments. You know they've used them that way. At other moments, they use the ideals to mask the inequality that they continue um, to propagate. Mm-hmm. So, for instance, leaders in, in, in Springfield or Boston would would uh, would with one hand they would redraw these school districts to continue segregation, and with the other hand they would say, "We're Massachusetts. We're committed to equality. Obviously, we we were committed to equality and freedom. Total mask, total smokescreen. Mm-hmm. So, using those ideals to to simply conceal what they were doing." So I think it has worked both ways throughout our history. I don't think those are are those are, those ideals are totally false. I think one also has to see how they're used as methods to conceal the reality at certain times. In the history. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a really complex thing. Yeah. The question of where we're headed, I mean, I finished my book, All Eyes Are Upon Us, in 2014. It was Obama's second term. I was optimistic about... Um, the future of race in America mm-hmm. and now i 'm not yeah we've t- we 've taken a total turn back white supremacists are emboldened they mm-hmm. see an ally in the white house um, it 's appalling yeah. um, so so i don 't think you can look at the current situation and 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 have, have you know i 'm generally hopeful and optimistic, but the past few years in terms of in terms of uh, the policies and you know, the treatment of
0: migrants in our country um, yeah. gives me very little reason to hope. I, I think if, if there's any if there's any bright spot in that, it's that it's spurred a lot of people to take action. Yeah, that's I, true. But it certainly doesn't seem like the good guys are necessarily winning right now. So I think it's clear that myself and everyone in Boston can stop celebrating over the fact that we never had segregated bathrooms. You know, the reality is, the segregation practiced in the Northeast was almost more insidious than that practice in the South, as it's way more difficult to abolish the strategic recarving of school districts than it is to abolish a whites-only school. And I don't want to give any spoilers out on next month's topic, but I will say this practice is still going on today and is much, much more difficult to root out. Now, The unequal distribution of home loans and creation of school districts along racial lines effectively blocked the African-American community in the Northeast from the benefits of the economic growth of the decades that followed, and that led to a wealth and education gap that still exists today. Again, no spoilers on March, but we're going to talk about one strategy that could help next month. Now, before I go, I promised you all something to walk away with. In doing my research, I came across the website guide to That's guide as in guide, two as in T-O, ally, A-L-L-Y, for those of you who spell it A-L-L-I-E, ship.com. It talks about how you or your favorite white person can more effectively work against racism and racial injustice in our country. And I'll give you a word of caution. It is going to involve a little bit of discomfort and a little bit of work, but I hope you weren't expecting a web page that says, be nice to everyone. Now, next week, we're wrapping up Black History Month by going back to Brazil. Vanya Pena-Lopez, professor of sociology at Bloomfield College and author of the book, Confronting Affirmative Action in Brazil, University Quotas, Students and the Quest for Racial Justice, joins me to discuss her native country's attempts to resolve longstanding issues of racial inequality and what we might learn about it in Os Unidos. And we also talk about that very special subject that I'm going to be talking about in March. Am I doing a good job building the anticipation? Are you ready for it to be March yet? Too bad, Groundhog didn't see a shadow, which means nine more days of February. Sorry, folks. As always, theme music we're not playing this month courtesy of Prellertack. You Don't Have to Yell is produced in lovely North Carolina, United States by the big geno Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally signing off.